Due to fast-moving events in Ukraine, we recorded this episode on Thursday, the 24th of March, for release on the 29th of March. There is nothing the Russians can do in the propaganda war to persuade anyone that what they're doing is right. You might get China tiptoeing around, you might get India tiptoeing around, but they know that what the Russians are doing is not right. The world knows that what Russia is doing is, is detestable and despicable. That makes the, the sort of moral crusade, really, of what the Ukrainians are doing so much greater, so much more powerful. And we owe them our freedom. We know that they are fighting for their freedom, but we also know that they're taking the hit for us. Hello and welcome. My name is Tom Ashton and I'm back for another episode of Bloody Violent History with James Jackson. Together we're going to talk about moments from the past that tell us who we are, how we got here and perhaps where we're heading. And yes, it's often violent and generally quite bloody. And today we're going to tackle the Russians. It's been a month since Vladimir Putin ordered his invasion of Ukraine. The 24th of February, the day of invasion, a day of infamy, should be a date to remember like that of 9-11. 30 days have passed, the vaunted Russian military are stuck in the mud, the Ukrainians are defending their land with skill and great bravery. And guess what? Putin's regime are responding in time-honoured form with cruelty and violent malice. Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, did it when he massacred his own people at Great Novograd. Peter the Great did it when he punished his musketeers with horrible vengeance. And that's before we even get to Stalin and the miseries and death he inflicted on his own people and especially the Ukrainians in the 30s. So now it's time to examine the dark soul of Rus. James, what is the state of play? Well, as you said, Tom, it is historic. It's a day of infamy, the 24th of February, and it's one we will all remember. I mean, you mentioned 9-11, and uh, you know, we all sort of remember what we were doing that day. And I remember for four days being in the studio of Five Live, Radio Five Live, and it was extraordinary, all this information coming in and having to make predictions and you know, predicting that it would end up with America invading Afghanistan and Iraq. So today, not only are we going to look at the situation, but we're going to make a few predictions at the end and see in time whether we got it right. Yeah, well, the state of play, I mean, the current state of uh, the Russian situation after a month in Ukraine, it's not looking that good for them. It wasn't looking good before they went in. Anyone who looks at it from that moment of the 24th, I, I suspected that as soon as they went in, they would lose because you cannot take and hold a country the size of Ukraine with 150,000 to 200,000 men. It is simply impossible. So even had the Russians got half a million men, they would still have to hold garrisons. They'd still have to take cities. And I think I put into my Bloody Bite podcast, Top Trumps, that you bombard cities, you simply create a, a situation in which there are choke points, there are ambush points, and great defensive positions for the Ukrainians. But at a strategic level, the Russians had lost anyway when they went in, because Russia has lost any sort of prestige, which is what Putin wanted. They've become a pariah state. Their economy is shot and been sent back into the Dark Ages, and that will take 30 years to recover. And perhaps most importantly, the military prestige that Putin wanted and promised his nation, again, is completely gone because the Russian military has been utterly humiliated and, I suspect, totally defeated. And you mentioned strategic, but at the operational and tactical level, they have also really not done a very good job. They haven't done a good job for so many reasons. Firstly, they don't have the numbers, so they can't concentrate force in any way. They're essentially 
spread out across large parts of the country. They're trying to encircle cities. They can't do that. So there's always going to be pushback from the Ukrainian armed forces. And every day, as the size of the Russian military diminishes because of attrition, because of casualties, the size of the Ukrainian armed forces increases. So I suspect that by this stage, the Ukrainian army has actually doubled in size in the month since the invasion. And the Russians obviously have lost tens of thousands of men killed or wounded. So that's the first thing. They can't concentrate force. Are you, are you surprised? I mean, I was pretty shocked to see a picture from the battlefield. Obviously, it might not be the case, but uh, captured a Russian soldier uh, that in his pack, his field dressing... It was shown to be dated from the mid-70s, you know, and that's not even tech. That's the most basic requirement. But, but it's fascinating that it's, it's always the way that if you live in a society or if you have a defence structure that is modern, you project that technology onto the opposition, onto the enemy. And even during the 1980s, you know, there was this concept that the Soviet Union was technologically advanced. I remember you know, Ronald Reagan talking about the Sari Shagan laser development complex of the Soviet Union. And this was supposed to have amazing laser weapons that could shoot down satellites and how advanced they were. Yeah. It turned out they were using dodgy 1970s components and they hadn't even got out of the lab, basically. So you know, we always think they have good technology. But when it comes to matters on the ground, you come across tanks that don't have thermal imaging. You obviously have an air force that doesn't have enough precision-guided weapons, air-to-surface, air-to-ground weapons. So they are completely doomed on the military front because they don't have the kit, they don't have the technology, and they don't have the manpower and the morale to sustain this kind of expedition. And on morale, what is going on with the, the morale of the Russians versus the morale of the Ukrainians? One is fighting for the country, the other isn't. It's, it's no more complicated than that. I, I remember talking to a, a British senior officer who advised the Ukrainians at a strategic level from 2015 onwards, and he said it was perfectly clear that the Ukrainians were going to fight. So how there could have been this intelligence failure on the part of the Russians, who have a huge investment in their intelligence-gathering system, who think they know their neighbours, the Ukrainians, and yet got it profoundly wrong, who actually believed they could take Ukraine in 48 hours and the Ukrainians would simply roll over. And that was never going to happen. Yes, they had obsolete kit. A lot of their kit was pretty old, even older than what the Russians had. But their morale counts for everything. And they are fighting for their lives and their homeland and for freedom. So do you think uh, that means that the Russians have already lost? I do. Uh, I, I've always said that the, the Russians lost the day they went in because they cannot sustain it. Uh, you know, we, we talked about the lack of concentration of force. There is this problem with attrition, huge levels of attrition. And if they've lost a fifth of their manpower, killed or wounded, after a month, after another month they will have lost over a quarter, Beyond that, they will end up losing a third, and no army can sustain those sorts of casualties. They could up the conscription. They could up the conscription, but that's more cannon fodder going into the meat grinder. And given that their, their frontline units have been totally blunted against the cities and they've expended so much ordnance on that, and you know it's an act of desperation when all they're doing is bombarding cities, they haven't even got into the insurgency part of the campaign yet. So, And that will take even more. And again, they haven't even got into the spring melt yet. There's more mud to come. There's more mud and blood to come. Yeah. So... That's the problem. They simply don't have the manpower or the kit to move on from a kinetic war 
a frontal assault on the enemy or even a flanking attack on the enemy and then take on the insurgency. They won't be able to do it. I think the aims of what they're doing are slowly going to narrow and narrow even further as they come towards some kind of negotiated settlement. So it's possible you could say it's the beginning of the end for Russia and the beginning of the beginning, the true beginning for Ukraine. In November 1999, James Jackson wrote Cold Cut. In it, and with chilling prescience, he depicts the ruthless and paranoid mindset of Leonid Gresko, a KGB officer who is set on becoming the next Russian president. Extract 1. Leonid Gresko viewed the American politicians from above the rim of his glass. He sat close to them, radiating unpleasantness and the occasional uninterested half-smile. An anonymous figure to most of those present, ugly enough to be respected, uncommunicative enough to be left alone. Matters were accelerating, several more senior political figures and Duma representatives ensnared in the past week. Blackmail was so much more effective than purchase. If one bought a man's loyalty, he held the initiative, would eventually raise the price. If one possessed photographs, recordings, waved hard copy of his flaws and aberrations beneath his nose, then ownership and compliance were assured for a lifetime. Everyone had weaknesses. The skill was to exploit them. Only that morning a member of the uphouse had begged, cried, when told of the LSD-pushing habits of his son. College entrance was at stake, future career prospects threatened, family pride about to be stripped. Tears were so unbecoming in the mail. Gresco took another sip. He could smooth away the unpleasantness, he told the man, at minimal cost. That of future support. A simple argument, rapidly accepted. The professional quid pro quo. His own man had supplied the boy with drugs. And it's certainly the beginning of the end for Putin. I think yeah. you know, when your defence minister goes missing with a apparent heart condition, then you know you're in trouble because Putin is already scapegoating, already finding people to blame. And it's so reminiscent of... Adolf Hitler in the bunker, you know, it's, it's, it's his fault, but he's not going to accept that. So do we know it'll be, all be over when he suddenly dis- tells us that he's married his mistress? <laughs> <laughs> Something for... Index. I, I think it'll all be over when he gets a bullet in his head. And, and I think people will start manoeuvring about it. And there are whispers that people in the FSB are not happy. Certainly the people in the intelligence community and, and also in the military will not be happy. I mean, not only is there a morale, equipment, manpower problems at the front, there are huge problems in command and control. There's no real command and control. They can't resupply, they can't refuel, they're running out of ordnance. And That's why they're losing so many generals. They're pulling the levers and nothing's happening. Yes, they're, they're losing tanks and generals. And that's just on the ground. I think in the air as well, you have this real problem that because they don't have guided precision weapons, uh, and certainly not in the numbers that are required, you end up using Sukhoi, Su-25, Frogford aircraft, flying low, slow, uh, in a straight line, and they're being picked off by man-portable air defence systems like the Stinger or the Strela. So the, the Russians can't get out of that situation. You know, they're losing equipment in the air and on the ground. They can't manoeuvre, their helicopters are vulnerable, uh, they can't outflank. So w- whatever they do, they're, they're, they're stuck, they're stuck. And you know it's going to get ugly when the Ukrainians start putting the, the corpses of Russian soldiers in the letter, letter Z. And it reminds me of what the Russians did to the Germans during World War II when they took over a German military hospital and they killed well over a 1,000 patients and laid out their corpses on the ground in, in a giant SS rune uh, that could be seen from the air. And, and that's how ugly it's going to become. OK, well, we've already mentioned a bit about weapons, but let's hear a little bit more 
about the weapons that are being deployed against the Russians? I, I think it's both the tactics and the weapons that are, that are fascinating to see and, and to really analyse what the Ukrainians are doing because the Ukrainians have absorbed the punishment. They took the initial shock and then they're coming back and you know, they defended certain areas, they let certain areas go to the Russians and now they're pushing back because they can see that the Russians are losing men and materiel and they are gaining in confidence and in equipment. Their equipment is excellent for defence, particularly the man-portable devices, whether it's the Enlaw uh, anti-tank rockets, the Javelin anti-tank missile, the man-portable air defence systems. These are the things that, that are so good at defence, that are really good with small units that can ambush, that can uh, really take the Russians, take the war to the Russians at any point. You know, and they don't need large numbers of tanks. The Ukrainians will be just as vulnerable as the Russians if they go on major offensives in the way that the Russians tried to do. Well, the Russians seem to be uh, driving their tanks around without infantry support. They don't have the, the, enough infantry and they also stick to the roads because they don't want to be stuck in the mud and they don't have the command and control that allows them to operate in manoeuvring environments and, and in combined arms operations. So they're absolutely stuck and because they were really hoping to press into the cities, they're stuck outside the cities and, and really are not going to progress any further than that. And do you think they have, this is the Ukrainians, effectively an unlimited amount of MPADs and NLAW equipment? I mean, it, is it, you know, because they can be, the West can supply them as much as they can get in. Yes, they? if you look at the numbers, it's said that the Ukrainians have 20,000 now plus anti-tank weapons well that far outnumbers far outweighs the number of armored vehicles the russians have in the field so they could wipe out the russian armored vehicle force several times over and there's nothing the russians can really do about that i mean you know things are bad when the russians are putting carpets on top of their tanks trying to disguise themselves <laughs> so there's nothing they can do and the number of drones mm. that are coming in the number of anti-tank weapons that are coming in that's not going to get less so the russians will not be able to push forward whatever they try but they can still pummel Ukraine into the ground with their artillery can't they? you can pummel cities into the ground but you can't break spirit you can't break the will of a people to resist and given that you've got a population even a population where two and a half three or more million people have fled sort of westwards and you've got 10 million people displaced overall at the moment you've got huge numbers of people who will volunteer to fight the russians in some ways they've almost improved the situation because they've got the vulnerable people obviously not all of them, but the women and children, out of the way. And the men have all been told they've got to stay and fight. And so they've cleared the decks. Yes, it's amazing what damage you can do even with a hunting rifle. And the, the, I cannot see a way out for the Russians apart from a negotiated settlement. And I think that because the Ukrainians are on the front foot and they've gone from uh, taking the initial blow and surviving to actually moving forward and taking ground. I, I cannot see the Ukrainians will get onto this at the end, but conceding so much that that the, 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 the sort of blood they've shed mm. is pointless. You know? Do you think it's possible that if they get on a roll somewhere in, in, in uh, pushing the, the Russian forces back, that they could actually roll across the border? into Russia. I don't think they'd do that because they don't want to be seen as the aggressor. And I don't think they need to do that, given that uh, from reports that are coming out, there are already uh, Belarusians who are cutting railway links, for example. And I think you'll start getting uh, Russians protesting as well. So I think it'll be far harder for the Russians to manoeuvre. And people are going to start sort of seeing the wounded coming back. There was a column written by Freddie Forsyth the other day where he said, well, if it becomes an insurgency, 
people should just shoot for the legs of the Russians because if you should just like those slipper mines or shoe mines in the Second World War, if if you in, injure a man in the legs, you've got to have him carried out on a stretcher. You've got to have him put him in an ambulance. That takes up logistics. It uses fuel that could go into tanks. And then you've got a cripple walking around back home, which isn't good for morale or national morale. So it has all this sort of knock-on effect. And if it's true and if it's, if it's right that Russian officers are already being fragged by their men, uh, and there was one report of a Russian officer being rolled over and crushed by a tank by one of his own men protesting at losses, yeah, and fragged, for those of you who haven't heard all our podcasts, it comes from the the um, fragmentation grenade, which in the Vietnam War, I think it was, wasn't it? That's that right. The soldiers, if they didn't like their officer, they would lob a grenade into his tent <laughs> and uh, get rid of him. And, and, and the Russians have a history of mutiny in the army. Back in the 80s, there was an entire trainload of Russian soldiers who mutinied on the way to Afghanistan. And there were huge mutinies uh, on the Eastern Front during the uh, Great War. So you know, this, this goes on all the time. And, and again, if it's true that there are punishment squads already sort of shooting deserters, the, then the Russians have a real problem. And they don't want to be there. And whether they're suffering from wounds or frostbite uh, or, or, or loneliness or fatigue or lack of food, their morale is shot. And, and they are not on a, on a winning ticket at all. And it must be that um, even though NATO are not going to get involved directly, there's so much that the Western nations can do. I, I mean, for example, is there anything to stop the Polish uh, medical authorities from treating wounded Ukrainian soldiers? Is there any issue? I'm sure they're probably doing that, and certainly there'll be volunteers doing that. Yeah. And a lot of the uh, foreigners joining the International Legion will go in with medical supplies and with medical training. So uh, they will certainly help with trauma wounds and gunshot wounds and, and, and blast injuries. I'm sure that is already happening. And it will probably be harder for the Russians to deal with injuries. And you've already seen the Russians leaving the battlefields littered with their corpses. Uh, whereas at least the Ukrainians, because they're fighting on home soil, will be able to deal with their own dead and wounded far more effectively. And there's been quite a lot of talk about some of the weapon systems that have uh, anti-tank weapons, these manpads and so on. But um, th they've got more stuff coming down the line, haven't they? More help, the Ukrainians, from the West. Oh, there's a lot of weaponry going in. And uh, of course, you're going to get the Ukrainians asking for more and you're going to get uh, sort of quibbles and arguments among NATO members and among European countries on what they want to supply. And there have been delays in sending S-300 uh, Russian missiles that, that are stockpiled in the West to the Ukrainians. And that's a real bugbear for the Ukrainians. What is that? What is an S-3? Well, it's, it's a long-range surface-to-air missile, and, and that's what's really well, another reason why the Russian aircraft are being forced down to lower level. But, but of course, that puts them within range, within the scope of systems such as Stinger and Strela. So it's this sort of patchwork effect of sort of 70s uh, Soviet-era surface-to-air missiles or 80s missiles like the S-300 and then these sort of shoulder launch man pad systems that they, they are now being supplied to the Ukrainians and the Russians really don't have a way around that they don't know how to to get around that problem which is why they're losing so many helicopters so many close air support aircraft. And before we move on to the next section one final thing clearly the West are feeding intelligence to the Ukrainians. I mean, telling them where to go and where, where there's a column of tanks or where there's some artillery. Is that...? They're certainly being given coordinates, and it, 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 it's, it's not chance, it's not coincidence that uh, so many Russian senior officers have been taken out because it's amazing what satellite imagery or signals intelligence uh, can give. So... What do you mean? They might actually have spotted some general of, from a satellite and said, he's here, drop a... Without a doubt, because, a because it's not just the generals who are being taken out, it's the staff around them. And once the generals are taken out and the staff around them are taken out, they then have to be replaced. 
and they're replaced by generals who don't know the scene, don't know the men under them, don't know uh, the, the situation that they're being confronted with. So it's, it's very difficult for the Russians to fill the gaps that are starting to be created at a, at a senior level. It's funny to think that, you know, it was all the talk at the beginning was about how, you know, Zelensky and other important political military uh, wartime leaders in Ukraine would be targeted by Spetsnaz and and the Russian special forces, but it seems to have gone the other way. But I think, you, again, it's a bit like the technology. It's very easy to exaggerate capabilities, and people talk in hushed tones about Russian Spetsnaz, but if you look at what Russian special forces did at the Beslan siege, the school siege, and, and managed to kill hundreds of children, hundreds of innocent civilians, with their incredibly cack-handed... Uh, assault on the kidnappers, on the on the terrorists, then you, you can see that they, they have a real problem, even at that level. There are so many different groups, so many different special forces, so, diff so many different command and control systems going on that it's very difficult to control them. Parachuting uh, Russian airborne forces into cities like Kharkiv, unsupported, they're all, they're, of course they're going to be massacred. I mean, that was a terrible idea. But, but by this stage, the Russians were and are becoming desperate. So they'll try anything. And the first people to be killed are going to be special forces and airborne. But as, and also, as we've seen from looking into you know, the history of Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great, as sort of Russian examples from the past, is that there was a tremendous insignificance of the individual. They didn't care about people. No, and they've always brutalised each other. And I think if you're used to, you know, if you look at someone like Putin, if you're, and and the Russian hierarchy, if you're accustomed to brutalising your own people, to dropping barrel bombs on Aleppo, to using nerve agent in Salisbury, to rubbing out Grozny and Chechnya and killing twenty thousand civilians in that city, then pounding. Ukrainian cities is nothing. I think they have this attitude that because it's this sort of a moral approach, they don't believe in these sort of differences. They don't believe in this idea of non-competence. They don't believe, believe that you should treat civilians in a different way. As far as they're concerned, if they're in the way, they get destroyed. If it helps their military campaign, then why not annihilate them? It doesn't occur to them that they might be judged or other people might be appalled. They, they would simply just shrug. And just before we move on, one final thing. Uh, we've heard about the Turkish drones, but there are other drones on the way as well to help, the, help out the Ukrainians. The drones have been an astonishing success, and this is really the moment that they've been blooded, that they've cut their teeth and come into the public domain. And the Bayraktar TV2 has been hugely successful in attacking tank columns and uh, being used to uh, really take out um, signals, uh, locations and command posts. So they've been extremely successful. And, uh, of course, the Americans are now sending the switchblade, which is a suicide drone, a loiter drone that can then come in and, and attack both personnel and surface-to-air missile sites and armoured vehicles. And there's the switchblade 300 and the switchblade 600. So it'll be fascinating to see how effective they are. But the Ukrainians have proved themselves past masters at improvisation. And it adds another layer, another level uh, of weaponry that can assail the Russians, and the Russians don't really have an answer to it. More on drones. You can listen to Jamie on episode 38 of Bloody Violent History. And now on to the information war. So it's clear to almost everyone that some of the announcements uh, the Russians were going to make were gazumped by US and UK intelligence. So they, the, the Russians are about to do something, and before they can do it, up pops some spokesman from the West and says, this is what the Russians are, are going to do or are likely to do. That's uh, helped the situation quite a lot. 
And if it's true, it's driving Putin absolutely crazy. What do you think of that? Because he's got, he thinks there's someone close to him who's sending stuff oh, over. Oh, there's certainly high-level leaks. There's no doubt about that. Part of the problem is that the Russians are so clumsy in their information war. It's something like the technology where we thought they were really good and they would dominate the information sphere. But they've been supremely bad at it, partly because of the fact that they think nothing of brutalising people. So if they take out that theatre in Mariupol, they then say, oh, it was Ukrainian neo-fascists who did it. And no one believes them. No one believed anything they said in the lead-up. Well, some of the Russians well, in Russia um, are getting this stuff on their televisions. Are they believing that on there? They, they, they do, but a bit like Nazi Germany, the, the Russians, uh, the population, tend to believe what they want to believe. There's this sort of twin mindset, this parallel mindset, that they've learnt to create over the years, that they know something is wrong. They know that... It, that what is happening in their name is unacceptable. But then what they really want is to have a quiet life. They don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to be arrested. Uh, so they choose to believe what they're told because that's the best way of going about it. But there comes a point where it becomes so uncomfortable, becomes so unbelievable that you can't go on swallowing everything you're told by state propaganda. On the other side, you've got uh, Vladimir Zelensky, who's a, an absolute master of the information war. I, I mean, this is a man who's gone from playing the piano with his, with his pecker to um, being an absolute king on the airwaves. Well, that would get my vote. I mean, really, it, it, ju it just shows showmanship. <laughs> yeah. Showmanship and character. I tried to get his series on Netflix, but I couldn't find it. <laughs> but... but it is this thing that if you if you have a moral right behind it, if you have righteousness on your side, if you if it's a just war, if it's in self-defense, if it's discriminatory, and that you're not attacking Russian cities in return, you're defending your own cities, and your civilian population are suffering, it's so much easier to promote your cause, to defend it and to be the good guys. Uh, th there is nothing the Russians can do in the propaganda war to persuade anyone that what they're doing is right. You might get China tiptoeing around, you might get India tiptoeing around, but they know that what the Russians are doing is not right. The world knows that what Russia is doing is, is detestable and despicable. That makes the, the sort of moral crusade, really, of what the Ukrainians are doing so much greater, so much more powerful. And we owe them our freedom. We know that they are fighting for their freedom, but we also know that they're taking the hit for us. And what's feeding into the information war uh, is the intelligence war. I mean, for instance, the KGB mindset. The, the KGB mindset is so fascinating because it's also the Russian mindset, but in a way it's concentrated within the sort of secret world of Russia. that there's... And for KGB, I mean, we now have the FSB, but it was always really the KGB. Is that what you mean? Yes. And, and whether it's Soviet times or now, there's always been this chippiness, this slight inferiority complex. They would love to have a superior nation, one that stands out, one that's noticed and respected. But in a way, Putin has always used the situation when he's backed into a corner to show, well, I am the person who can defend Russia. You know, Russia's been put on the back foot. Russia's been pushed into a corner by sanctions or by the West attacking uh, him. And But he holds himself up as the saviour, has done until now. And because he has had some successes, whether it's in foreign policy terms in Syria or taking the Crimea... Everyone applauded him. Everyone thought, that's great. And again, it's very convenient for Russians to say, oh, well, we didn't know he was actually a monster or we didn't know that he would go so far. In, in the same way that the Germans said, oh, we didn't know after the war, we didn't know Hitler was going to turn in the monster he became. We, we really thought he was going to make Germany great again. But, of course, they were all applauding him when he invaded Eastern Europe and was doing well. 
uh, people tend to uh, support a winner. Well, it's it's incremental, isn't it? And I mean, at the beginning, Russia, and, you know, after the fall of um, the Soviet Union, there was quite a chaotic period, and people were thinking we need to get some stability. I mean, in the back of their minds, there's always the worry about what's going to happen to the nuclear weapons if if the whole country goes to pot. And I mean, even George Bush was saying, you know, that Putin was a man who he could he could get on with well. Well, people want bread and order. That's really what they want. And the you know the the flirtation that Russia had, the brief flirtation Russia had with democracy, plainly didn't work. It failed. And you're talking about a vast country, eleven different time zones, biggest country in the world. And Putin said, "I am going to restore." everything to you. I'm going to make Russia great. I'm going to give the military prestige. I'm going to make it an economic powerhouse. And it it didn't happen. And it certainly will never happen now. And just like the Soviet Union, the the, the flaws were never seen. No one noticed the weaknesses in the system. They simply saw that that there was more stuff in the shops and that people were becoming more prosperous. Uh, so they didn't question it. They didn't m- sort of take umbrage at press freedoms being stifled, opposition leaders being shot or incarcerated. This was just the price they would pay for having a quiet life and a life in a Russia that seemed to become more successful. Uh, and they didn't even mind Putin pocketing hundreds of billions of dollars. Extract two when things are not going to plan for Gresco. Gresco was sunk physically and mentally in thought, body deflated into an armchair, legs propped on a footstool. He was closing in on the president, yet felt encircled, pressurised on all sides, the insecurity of plans uncompleted, of an enemy outmanoeuvring. Were they closing in on him? Nuclear weapons his nuclear weapons, had gone missing from the caves near Nitsnudinsk, one of them almost certainly used in the destruction of the Ural's control centre. His foes could bite, but it wouldn't save them. He also could deploy weapons of mass destruction. Certainty was fraying, doubts corroding that monolithic ego, diverting his energies, distracting him from the ultimate goal. That girl was close, clear, more real than sanity. But how were they doing it, undermining him? Was it foreign assistance the agents Nigel Ferris alluded to? If so, they would be hunted, as had been Georgi Lazin and Boris Diakonov. Well, that leads neatly onto the economic war. Um, and, and if that's going to have an effect on on the Russians or on Putin deciding to bring this whole thing to an end because sanctions, and they are very severe sanctions, often don't, and being kicked out of the G20 and so on, that's not what stops despots, whether it's Stalin or Hitler, from actually carrying on with their plans. And even this war chest that we were all told about turns out to be that it was kept in the West, most of it, which is a bit of a mistake. And I'm sure, I'm sure half the foreign currency reserves of Russia will end up being used to rebuild Ukraine. So, well, I hope, yeah, I hope so. So Russia overnight has, has beggared itself on a military expedition, a military adventure that has comprehensively failed which is why I think Putin ultimately will come to some sort of negotiated settlement and, and will, will push it, will try and promote it as, as a great success. But no one's going to swallow it, and certainly those around him are no longer going to swallow it. They like their holidays, they like their cash. And with sanctions, with economic sanctions, I think so often the, the effects are longer term, medium to long term. You know, when, when bread start, stops being supplied in the shops, when consumer durables are no longer available, that's when people start complaining. That's when people start noticing. OK, well, so the issues to end this particular part, one of them is the no-fly zone, one of them is will China help Russia, and most worrying of all is will there be a nuclear war? 
That's, that's a lot of issues to discuss, to unravel in one package. The no-fly zone, well, that's not going to happen. I think that's been made clear. You, you don't want NATO directly butting up against Russia, particularly when Russia is doing so badly. And yes, people have talked about supplying Polish MiG-29s from, from Polish stocks. That's not going to happen. And I don't think looking at the battlefield situation now, that the Ukrainians really need aircraft. They're doing well enough with man-portable air defence systems. If they get longer-range um, missile systems, surface-to-air missile systems like the S-300, that will make their life easier. And they're doing very well with drones. The, 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 the Russians are really not pushing their frontal aviation forward as they were uh, in the first week, because their losses are so huge. So uh, that's no-fly zones really out of, out of the window. That's not going to happen. Uh, will China help? I think given that that has been flagged up by the West, it's going to be a problem for China to ally itself what, with Russia, with Putin's strategy. Yes, they're friends. Yes, they were getting close. But it's becoming obvious that China has hitched its wagon to the wrong horse. And it would do China irreparable harm to start supplying military kit to Russia and to be associated with the devastation of Ukrainian cities and with the nightmare of refugee flight across to the West. And, Chi and China, apart from what they considered their own, have never been, well, certainly not in in uh, the recent past, interested in going into other countries, have they? They certainly won't be interested in going into Taiwan now. <laughs> well... <laughs> and the, the military equipment that Russia might get from China is also pretty limited. Yes, there's some uh, sort of former bits of Russian kit that are manufactured, like the MI-8 helicopter that China produces under license. They they might send some of those to Russia. They might send a few uh, manned portable surface-to-air missiles, but Russia has enough of those, and they're not facing Ukrainian aircraft. They might send loiter munitions, for example. The, uh, they might send the Rainbow 5 drone. They might send drones. But the Russians have shown themselves to be uninterested and utterly inept when it comes to operating drones over the battlefield. So I can't see that that there's anything the Chinese can provide uh, that would actually change the situation materially for the Russians, that the Russians are losing, period. Well, to throw in the third point was um, whether there'd be a, a nuclear engagement on this battlefield, and also we should mention uh, chemical and biological weapons as well. Certainly the Russians, when it comes to nuclear, believe in the efficacy of tactical nuclear weapons. They, they have about 2,000. The United States has about 230. So it shows the difference in doctrine. Right. And so what you mean is that they would deploy a nuclear shell on a battlefield to take out a group of soldiers? And... They might use nuclear weapons earlier than anyone in the West. We, we would do it as a, as a weapon of last resort. They would actually integrate it into their battlefield scenario. But I can't see a situation. And if I get it wrong and things escalate, I'll come back as a microbe so you won't be able to criticise me. Cockroach. <laughs> yeah, you can come back as an amoeba. <laughs> I'll come back as a cockroach. I'm coming back as a lurcher. <laughs> but, <laughs> Maggie but, has such a great life. <laughs> but, but, I, but I, I, I don't know, given that devastating Ukrainian cities isn't winning them the day, to use a nuclear weapon in Europe, the first use of a nuclear weapon since 1945, it would be so catastrophic for Russia, just in terms of its political standing, let alone the military ramifications. Well, and also they're, they're trying to take Ukraine back to what they call Mother Russia, and they would inherit a chunk of real estate which was... Uh, contaminated. Yes, there's always that saying, you can create a desert and call it peace. Well, the Russians would really have to do that. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't see any advantage to Russia at all to going down that route. It's more likely 
and I think most military experts have, have, have commented on this, that it's more likely that they might try some kind of uh, poison gas, probably chlorine gas, and we put that into our mercenary podcast, the fact that the Russians, the Soviets, were using phosgene and mustard gas in Yemen, for example. So they certainly see chemical weapons as a possibility. They were using chlorine gas and barrel bombs, of course, in Aleppo as well, in Syria. So, But this feels so much closer than those parts of the world, doesn't it? That, you know, people, I think, even chemical, which is, you know, would be... Really it, stepping it, it, over the it line. would be stepping across the line. And to use chemical weapons, you have to have the logistics network, you have to have the support network, you have to have a fairly static uh, military situation so that your troops, your forces aren't entangled and entwined with the opposition forces. Yeah, and also the opposition forces, if you were aiming it at the military, the Ukrainian military, they're sort of small groups, aren't they? Totally. They, uh, they may well try and use it on cities, for example, mm. as, as uh, an appalling weapon to coerce and create surrender. But there's, there's too much of a problem in handling it, in, in ensuring that there's no blowback on your forces, that your supply chain isn't hit by Ukrainian forces. There was a case of Ukrainians... Uh, grabbing Russian rockets and firing them back onto Russian positions. So what happens if those forces fall into Ukrainian hands? What happens if your rockets, your shells, your supply dumps are hit by Ukrainian missiles or Ukrainian shells? Then you've got your own chemical problem on your hands. And so that too would be very difficult. And again, coming back to the information war, having that publicity shone on you as it's already been raised by uh, the West, then it's going to be harder for the Russians to deploy those weapons, I think. So the next big question for us is, should we, should the West have seen it coming? But before we get into the meat of this, you have a little quote from W.B. Yeats. Yeah, because when I wrote Cold Cut uh, in 1999, I wrote it as a warning. I wrote it about a KGB chief who takes over as president of Russia and returns Russia to its Stalinist past and takes advantage of the weaknesses and the chaos in Russia and, and adds to it so that he can come in as a strong leader and, and stand up and say, I am the saviour of Russia. And... I was allowed to use W.B. Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, and I, I used the, the last two lines, which are very telling. It's really a portent of things to come, of, of apocalypse to come. And he was writing it really about the rise of tyranny in Europe. And he wrote it in the 1920s. And he talks about the funeral gyre, this spiral towards apocalypse. And the last two lines are... And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. And I put it at the front of the book because I wanted people to understand that this is what would happen to Russia. Because there's such a strong history in Russia of these sort of tyrants coming to the fore, that after a period of instability, of chaos, you get these tyrants coming in promising the earth to their people and actually turning it into a charnel house, turning it into uh, just hell, essentially. And that's really what I wanted to get across. Extract three. When Gresco thinks he has the presidency firmly in sight. The FSB Special Operations Vega units came on, kneeling in open cars of the subway train. They were heading for Moscow's Victory Park and the tunnel complex which led to the Kremlin. Ivanov travelled with a second echelon, squads which had practised the assault for months. They would move through the access points secured earlier, mop up resistance and ensure Director Gresko's complete control of government. The Interior Ministry was pledged, could deal with any defence formulations foolish enough to stand in the way. An unlikely occurrence, 
Experience showed that in periods of instability, troops preferred to stay on base or on leave. Their officers preferred to wait. Caution took precedence over commitment. By then, it would be over. The result? Accepted. Army morale was low, NCO cadres utterly depleted, conscript discipline tenuous, the influence of the FSB's military counterintelligence department pervasive. Inaction was guaranteed. The winner offered strength, stability, a better deal for those in uniform, and the winner would be backed. Leonid Gresko for president. Feta accompli. Cool Cut was really a result, and it wasn't difficult to really get inside that KGB mindset, to get into that Russian nationalist mindset. So we talked about, uh, to some extent, the, the Russian mind, but people ask this question, Jamie, is Putin mad? No. I think, like all autocrats, he's become more autocratic, he's become more isolated. When you listen to people like Jonathan Powell, who was Tony Blair's chief of staff for 10 years, who, who met him several times, who met Putin several times, he talks at how the banquets became more lavish, there were more staff around. And it's like a czar accumulating, acquiring power to himself. And that has certainly changed. I think he certainly became more grandiose. He certainly became more like an oligarch. But, and but his logic is unchanged. I think, his, I think his logic is totally unchanged. I know people who were dealing with him back in the 1990s when he was just a government minister, and they always used to say, oh, I'm dealing with this strange little man. He's got a laugh like a little girl and tiny little hands and everyone's laughing behind his back. Well, no one's laughing now, that's for sure. But I think in his mind, he, he saw that the West had lost confidence after Afghanistan and Iraq. And he thought he could get away with it. He, he saw that the West was not united. He saw that NATO had sort of rather lost its raison d'etre. And he saw that he could make Russia big again, that he could make it relevant and powerful. So he did little land grabs here and there, whether it was in Georgia or Chechnya or getting involved in Syria or seizing the Crimea. And he saw that no one responded effectively against him. So he went for it. And it's um, interesting to me that uh, prior to doing this podcast, I was given my homework by Jamie to uh, look into Ivan the Fourth, Ivan the Terrible, or apparently Ivan the Great initially, and also Peter the Great, who was... Um, so Ivan the Terrible, 1530 to 1584, and Peter the Great... 1672 to 1725 and there are similarities between them they had terrible childhoods brutal childhoods i mean with witnessing of murder and terrible things going on they start off sort of successfully they were highly intelligent pretty well educated had excellent memory uh, and also in Peter the Great's case he was very interested in technical matters and in understanding how to build ships. Ivan the Terrible again he had an idea of expanding the the Russian the, the he was the Tsar of Muscovy and there was no port in the Baltic for the Russian state the Russian nation and that became a thing of interest to him but initially he had good people keep looking out for him for the first 10 years from 1550 to 1560, known as the good period, and, and was quite successful. But then the wheels start to come off. And when, the, when things go badly, the cruelty is, is extraordinary. Um, what, for instance, Ivan the Terrible did to great Novograd, that he spent five weeks having invested the city, and this is one of his own cities, he spent five weeks in that city butchering different classes and groups of citizens every day. He would just select another group and they would be dealt with in the most cruel manner. And now you've got Putin butchering the citizens of Mariupol. It, yeah. it, 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 there's, there is a line through history. And if you look at Ivan the Terrible and his, his attempt to take 
the Baltic states, to, to have access to the Baltic. It's so like Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It's this this self-aggrandizing move, this sort of strategic move, this belief that this should be part of Russia. And no wonder the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, are nervous because that's exactly the same thing, isn't it? He's got his little enclave at Kaliningrad on the Baltic Sea, but um, those, those other states are rightly feeling very nervous. Probably less nervous now, <laughs> given the, the the appalling losses of the Russians. Yeah, and, and the Ukraine. reaction of NATO. As the well. reaction of NATO. And, and the, he, he wouldn't possibly be able to, to, to cross the border into any of those Baltic states now. But, but Ivan the Terrible, he, he fought over that for a decade and got absolutely nowhere. So decade? For 20 was it tw- plus years? 20 yeah, years, yeah. yeah, two decades. Uh, I don't think the conflict in Ukraine will go that uh, that long because I think after two months, Putin isn't going to have an operational army left. Uh, and the parallels are there even down to both Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great killing their, their own children. Um, Ivan the Terrible whacked his son, who was also called Ivan, over the head when he lost his temper and the, and the poor fellow who was quite promising supposedly expired. And Peter the Great, who was... Spent, supposed to be not as terrible as Ivan, if that's the right way to put it. He tricked his son Alexius back to Russia with all sorts of promises of, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. And then he essentially tortured him to death with the Russian knout, which is uh, makes the cat of nine tails, which was a, a whip used by the British Navy, look like a little feather duster. This was an instrument you could beat somebody with, and if you beat them in a certain way, essentially you would break their spine and kill them. It, it makes one wonder why Navalny actually went back to Russia. <laughs> he knew what was going to happen. I, I know, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's I mean, staggering, and that because there is this sort of Russian soul. I mean, they talk about it so often, this Russian soul of sort of cruelty and suffering, this belief that this is what happens to you. That's why one of the reasons the Russians can take so much punishment, because they, they expect horror to happen to them. And it has happened for, for centuries. They, they don't know democracy. It's something they don't yearn for. And they're used to autocratic authoritarian leaders who punish them and kill them on a whim. So whether it's using nerve agent or polonium-210 or any other sort of aid, dioxins, whatever, you know that the Russians are going to, to try it. They are going to try and rub you out if you yeah. object to them, if you, if you oppose the leadership. We're back to the insignificance of the individual. Putin has essentially exploited and, in a sense, perverted that sense of history, the, the course of history. He's very selective in what he does. It's the same reason that he selectively picked out parts of Ukrainian history just to show that they were linked, that there was this destiny between them. But he has a very odd way of uh, proving that destiny and showing that they are somehow linked. He's trying to do it by force now because he's failed. All right, Jamie, well... What are going to be the long-term prospects for Putin and Russia? Predictions. Predictions, <laughs> predictions, yes. I think one always has to have a bit of humility Time here. Time to get your wallet out. I said at the beginning, and I'll say it once more, Russia lost the moment it crossed the border into Ukraine. It cannot win this. It cannot win politically, and it cannot win militarily. It has already lost. It doesn't have the manpower to hold Ukraine. It doesn't have the equipment that will allow it to hold Ukraine. So at some stage, and I believe that it will be sooner rather than later, because you can't freeze this war. They're already on the back foot, the Russians. So the front lines are too mobile. They can't just sit there. They will either have to go forward which they can't do, or they will have to go back, which they will do. So they've lost militarily, and that will only get worse. Whatever systems the Russians try and deploy, and people talk about, oh, they've got hypersonic dagger weapons, uh, that makes no difference at all 
to the overall strategic situation that Russia finds itself in, economically, politically or militarily. So what do I think for Russia? I think Russia is doomed. I, I, it is going back into the dark ages and there's no way out for them from this. I hope that's not going to be to the extent after Ivan the Terrible, it was 105, well, until Peter the Great, um, it was known as the Great Anarchy. It's not going to help anyone. Well, that really leads on to what will happen to Putin. I, I hope fervently that there's a Lavrenti barrier moment when Khrushchev and his pals turned on the former KGB chief and had him executed. I think Putin will probably end up with a bullet in his head. I, I don't know any other way out for him. I, I, and I cannot see the security apparatus or the military putting up with this for much longer or putting up with Putin and his cronies. And the fact that his defence minister has disappeared, the fact that others are slightly uh, running for cover, it shows that Putin is beginning to scapegoat. And if you start scapegoating those around you, eventually those around you are going to fear for their lives and their position and their money and will come after the leadership. So I think and I fervently pray that that is what is going to happen. Uh, could Navalny actually make a comeback or is that too Unf much to hope for? Well, unfortunately, a bit like the uh, plotters against Hitler, I think that should his regime fall, I think there will be a spasm of violence and retribution and those who are held in custody of those in power will probably not come out of it well. So I'd like to see Navalny come out alive, but I suspect that Putin and his people are so splenetic, so vengeful, that he's not going to thrive in his penal colony, and he might well just disappear like so many others, so many other critics of the regime. But I don't think Putin will come out of this well. I think that what he'll try and do, Sun Tzu talked about this golden bridge, this idea that you give people a ladder to climb down. And I think Putin will climb down a ladder, will make a deal of some sort from a position of weakness and then sell it, try and pitch it as a huge success. That is what he will do. But I don't think ultimately it will save him from those around him. So that's good, ultimately, for the Ukrainians. So what are the Ukrainian prospects? The Ukrainians, too, will come to some sort of... They will have to come to some sort of compromise. But the Ukrainians have shed blood, a lot of blood. So I can't see them suddenly going, oh, well, have, have the Donbass, have eastern Ukraine. Um, because if they do that, firstly, they will have martyred a lot of their people in vain, and secondly, they will lose their industrial base and their mining base and end up just as a, an agricultural nation. So the standard of living will collapse. I can't see the Ukrainians doing that. But the compromise they might reach is, is saying to the Russians, have Crimea. They, they, they might come to that and obviously agree not to join NATO, which was a long shot anyway. So, so those are the sorts of agreements that might be made. But Ukraine will be rebuilt, I have no doubt about that. And Ukraine will thrive. And this will enter the foundation legend of Ukraine. And, and people fought, people died, and people sacrificed themselves for a later freedom. Yeah. And what is the German word? There's a great German word, Zeitbender, so epoch-changing. And I think it is epoch-changing. This is a, an amazing bit of history. And we're alive during it. And it has seen a reinvigorated NATO. I mean, all right, there are countries like Germany backsliding on oil and gas, but that was always going to happen. You get France that will probably try and cut deals with Russia on the side. But when you get a uh, such a seismic change, when you get Germany increasing its defence spending, when you get Switzerland actually applying sanctions, you know that something fundamental has changed. And I suspect that Sweden and Finland will also join NATO. So you will get a, a, a reinvigorated, a tougher uh, North Atlantic treaty organisation. And, uh, and um, I think it's good that the Americans have seen that 
the rest of the members of NATO are prepared to stand up for it and put their hands in their pockets at last? I think they had to. There, there was no choice. I think it's been so catastrophic, so mind-altering, that the, 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 the sort of changes in Europe, what Putin has done that it couldn't go ignored. I mean, people have cozied up to the oligarchs, to Putin, to Russia for too long uh, and been bought by Russia for too long. Uh, and even uh, Mutti Merkel al- allowing uh, Germany to become totally dependent on Russian gas. I mean, all these epic errors that were made, they, they've been swept aside. And people have suddenly realised what has happened, what is going on. and And so big changes afoot. But I think the upshot is Ukraine will survive and Russia is really humiliated. Very good. Well, we're pretty much near the end now, but we're just going to have to slip in a little postscript. Well, we've talked about Russia, that that sort of Russian psyche, that Russian mindset. And it has to be said that they bully, lie, cheat, steal, invade. That's what they do. So the best trick is really to not play them at their own game, but but act asymmetrically in the same way that they have done with cyber attacks and destabilizing countries on their border, that sort of thing. And a great example of that, of, of how we got back at the Russians, was really 1982, because throughout the 1970s, the Russians, the Soviets, had stolen so much technology from the West the CIA discovered this and started feeding junk into the Soviet maw, back into the Soviet system, particularly microelectronics, computers, and pumps for their gas and oil industry. And lo and behold, in 1982, the pumps that America had provided uh, secretly... Well, they were missing a few vital to, nuts and bolts. Well, they suddenly went haywire, and they overpressurized the Trans-Siberian gas pipeline to such an extent there was a massive explosion it was the largest non-nuclear detonation since the second world war and destroyed vast tracts of the trans-siberian gas pipeline now that is the way to deal with the russians hack back and actually the chinese too why not why not Excellent. Well, thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Tom. So it goes. Thanks for listening. My name is Tom Ashton and his name is James Jackson. Please subscribe on BVH on your podcast app and it really helps others to hear about us if you leave us lots of stars and a review. You can find us on our website at bloodyviolenthistory.com. For suggestions and comments, you can email me at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you and good luck.